Welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm Molly Presley, the host, and I'm super excited to get to invite Mark Peters here as my guest today. Mark, welcome. You're super excited. Well, so am I then. I am super excited. Okay, me too. (laughs) Well, today's a pretty special episode of Data Unchained, but it's even more special day for Mark, I would say. Um, Today, as we're recording, is Mark's final day of working and moving into retirement. Yes. <laughs> so be careful what you ask me. I might actually tell you the truth. <laughs> it should be a fun a fun chat because um, Mark and I have had a lot of history together. Mark has had a lot of history in this industry, watching trends and hardware, software, data, what vendors do, what happens through economic upturns, economic downturns, lots of different things. So I think this is going to be a great day to um, celebrate Mark's departure from the industry so he can go on and do some wonderful things personally. But also, he, we get to pick his brain a little bit more unfiltered because by the time this episode p- publishes, he will not be officially an analyst anymore. So um, let's jump into it, Mark. I think that it would be great for you to talk a little bit about your background. Um, I have a few stories to share probably as we go through. But um, first, just what have you done with your career personally? Okay, well, I'll keep it quick. First off, I hope I would always be unfiltered. I mean, that's one of the things I'm not, um, I'm not smart enough to remember who I told what to if it wasn't what I really thought or it wasn't the truth. So um, I, I trust I've always been straightforward, not just with you, but with everyone, because uh, as I say, that's the, it's, it's not, it's nothing to do with morals. It's everything to do with I'm not smart enough to remember who I spun what story to. So um history very quickly um gosh i don't you know oh, i was born at a young age no um i started in sales um and that was in the tech industry um pretty quickly uh moved up and around and you know we'll get to the interesting part uh so i will say at one point i was selling storage um for uh most of the organizations i worked for die eventually it's very sad. I think, although as a more serious comment, that's a comment on the industry, isn't it? The, the 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 vendors, the names typically change. There are very few like IBM or HPE that stick around for decades um, or multiple decades. So I used to work, uh, my first job in storage was for Memorex Telex, if you remember them. Um, and then I moved across from... I do not, actually. And you, you must. There used to be that thing with the... They, Memorex, so they used to be in the audio industry as well, and they made tapes. I mean, that was the... the you, you remember tapes, Molly? Of course you do. I remember tapes. I know a lot about tapes. There is still tape, amazingly enough. Tape is not quite dead <laughs> Stuck yet. Stuck with a company. There's a tape, couple tape companies who have been around for 40-plus years, right? IBM, Spectrologic, it is, it is the It is the technology that not just refuses to die, but probably will never die just because of the, the immutability that it brings and the um, consistency, reliability, air gapping and the rest of it. But um, although, you know, since we're going to talk about me being very old, I do remember when I first joined the industry um, being taught about, te- it's so funny, I came from a non-technical background. I studied history at college, which sometimes I think is useful for the IT industry just to, to take a longer term view of things. But I remember sitting through um, my first training course on, on tape drives somewhere near Heathrow Airport in the UK. And um, they were explaining what the difference between two you know, confusingly numbered products was, something from 
Memorex and something from IBM. And I remember sort of eventually summoning up the courage, I think, on the morning of day two to say, what's a tape drive? Because <laughs> I didn't know. There they were telling me about all these differences. But then also the guy, and you can't see my hands in the picture, but the guy held up a piece of tape. This is how old I am. You could actually develop it like a photo and look at the individual bits. I mean, just in terms of how much the industry's moved on. So that's, gosh, that's uh, 35 years ago, you know, so, you know, that really is a long time. But anyway, very briefly, because I got way off track, of course. It does, though, a thing I think that is interesting is it shows how quickly we've also evolved as an industry. Think about IT folks were being trained on how to properly handle a mechanical device. What is the best way to eject? How do you carry the media to the place where it will be stored? Once it's stored, how do you keep it safe? How do you make sure it will work when you put it back in the device? Like very manual, very mechanical. Um, And I would suspect that almost no one coming out of a degree of any sort in IT today even thinks about things like that. Well, it raises an interesting point because when I first started, I don't want to say that. I find so much of my comment in both life and work these days starts with, well, many years ago. Um, But, I mean, when I first started, I would walk into data centers and there were punch card readers. Um, And, uh, you know, immediately I can imagine people watching this who have only been born in the last few decades. and Oh, here he goes, talking about old stuff. Well, of course, the reason that's relevant is because that's still the underpinning of how we do so much. We think everything these days is cool and new and just came out of some, you know, high-tech lab somewhere. But the reality is the underpinnings of it are exactly what, you know, you, you go and watch Alan Turing and, you know, the, the imitation game or whatever. You watch the beginnings of computing. And the underpinnings have not changed since the beginning. How we show that, how we use that, the, the specifications, of course, are fabulous. And the things we manage to do with technology are just amazing. Look at what we're doing now. You and I are sitting, you know, miles and miles away at laptops, none of which existed before. We've probably arranged this by email and text, none of which existed before. But underneath all that, it's exactly what was on punch cards. And people tend to forget the the constraints that puts on IT. Absolutely. I worked at IBM. That was actually my very first tech job. And they required every IBM employee to read something called Building IBM, a book about where it was originated. And there was a lot about punch cards, mainframes, things like that. And their goal in having every IBM employee read it, and probably they still do that today, was to understand the evolution, where they came from. And really, like you say, a lot of the fundamentals are the same. It's just how we accomplish them is much faster, much easier than it was in the past. And and some things aren't identical, of course, but you can still trace it back to its roots. Um, And so... A very smart person once told me, now this is a few years ago, so maybe things have moved on a little bit, but he shared with me, oh, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, and it was really interesting. He said, Mark, do you realize that basically everything we do, with the exception of compression in IT, was essentially there in the days of the mainframe? Um, now, and I, again, I know there'll be people watching this who grew up with you know, the cloud and iPhones and you know cybersecurity problems and the rest of it to think, why is he even talking about a mainframe? Because mainframes had, um, you know, virtualization. You could split, you could partition mainframes. Um, they had a lot of security. Essentially, I mean, here you are talking about being unfiltered. I've told IBM a couple of times they should rename the mainframe a cloud frame or something like that because it was originally 
really a cloud in many respects. Um, it might sit in one place, but then one can argue these days about whether clouds are disparate, dispersed or whatever. But the concept was there. Anyway, I'm going to come back to your first question because I never finished that. I know you'll want me to answer the first question. So I then moved. I spent a long time at Storage Tech. You do remember them. I do remember Storage Tech well. In fact, I've briefly did a stint working there as well before they spun off a managed service group. So I know them well. And I remember seeing you, I think, in some of the EBCs at Storage Tech. Correct. And that's... uh... Again, you know, I mean, I know that's when we first met, but the tape industry around Colorado was big because IBM set up their tape manufacturing here and that spawned, you know, multiple competitors to it. And that's, you know, why we we now inhabit this area, you know, hilariously called Silicon Mountain. But uh, um, I I was at Storage Tech and that's what moved me to America. Um, I carried on there for a time, stayed through the acquisitions by Sun, um, not didn't quite make it till it got bought by Oracle. Uh, in the meantime, worked for myself for a few years and then uh, met the guy, uh, a guy called Steve Duplessis, who ran this company called ESG. I was petrified of analysts, I've got to say, um, because uh, at some point in my career at uh, Storage Tech, I'd owned the analysts. Um, and luckily, and, and really my aim used to be get in and out of that room as quick as you could <laughs> because it was going to be awkward. And I think that's an old-fashioned view and uh, we're not going to talk about what analysts do. That's boring for everyone listening. But but certainly, like every other part of this ecosystem, there are many swim lanes and many different types of organization that sort of vaguely call themselves analysts. But anyway. So I think that um, as you think about analysts, and when I really got to know you, you were an ESG analyst. And that concept of being a bit intimidated absolutely still applied to me. Um, Actually, I think I'm still intimidated by Steve Duplessis. I remember the CTO kind of roundtables he used to do at Storage Networking World, and and he would really challenge people on their thoughts and wouldn't hold back. And I remember seeing back every time I had to talk, and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> here comes Steve. And actually, it turns out he's a really great guy. But um, one of the icebreakers you and I had, we were both in London, and I had the opportunity, as I think most people can tell you, do have a British background. And... Um, got to have the opportunity to go to a very fine tea with you along with one of my colleagues, Bexie Doty. And we were downtown and central London and got to have a proper tea with the, the little cakes and the little sandwiches hosted by a proper English man, which was really great. Um, but it really broke the ice and for me. And I starting to understand that analysts actually can really help to guide thinking you know if you if you don't just talk to them about what you have done but what you might like to do and getting input and building that kind of relationship where it's collaborative it actually can build great relationships professionally and you make some really great long-term friends as well so i think that was a great way for me to actually come over that that bridge from you know a audience that you're speaking to versus one that you're collaborating with yeah, no, no, I mean that, that. I mean, going back to what what you said at the beginning in terms of being unfiltered. I've got I've got two comments. I mean, one, the advantage of leaving anything is it's not about being unfiltered. It's just that you can be a little more about, honest about you know taking down any pretense you ever had. When I talking about history, when I joined ESG and became an analyst, I mean, I remember, and I'm not going to go through the whole story, but saying I I was actually asking, you know, why on earth do you want me? I don't understand technology. Um, and Steve said, yeah, but actually, well, we don't think you're entirely stupid, but more to the point, that is kind of why we want you because, um, it's to try and look at things a little differently and try and therefore do that collaborative help because anyone, not anyone, but lots of people 
can uh, write about a particular product, but doing it in a way that will differentiate you, that will explain the real value and so on and so forth is what I've enjoyed trying to do in the industry. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, because I remember the tea well, and what's interesting about that is we both remember that because it was different. Um, mm -hmm. I can't right. remember a hundred business dinners I've had, a thousand, whatever, because, you know, they all pale into the same overpriced steak. Um, and so that was fun. But the other thing I was going to say, because we did talk about this in preparation, I was thinking, because I don't want to sound like I just came up with this arcane thought as we're talking here, but I was thinking having, whether it's a full English tea, you know, with all the stacks or whether it's just a cup of tea, is that th there's an interesting and I don't think strained parallel to IT. And now you're wondering what the heck I'm going to talk about. The, 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 ingre the, the ingredients are very obvious and exactly the same. So it's either, you know, tea leaves, hot water, maybe lemon, sugar, milk, whatever you want to do. Um, and even if you do all the cakes, they're pretty obvious. They're, you know, sugar and flour and butter and whatever else. And IT is pretty much the same constituent ingredients how you put the difference on even just a cup of tea. Let's talk about that. You, how can you go wrong? It's hot water, some tea, some tea leaves, some sugar, milk, whatever. And yet many people can't make a cup of tea. Um, and so you can see the similarity I'm going for. The ingredients of IT are, are pretty similar across the, you know, there's some networking, there's some storage, there's some compute and so on. And there's some software, obviously. Um, and yet the ability of people to do IT badly or to make a bad cup of tea remains quite amazing. So where do you see us as an industry today? Who's doing it well? What are you seeing as the shining lights of big successes, good references towards what should be done with the, these ingredients today, making that good cup of tea? Okay, here you go. This is, this is a little sermon. It's only two minutes long. But um, okay, big quest test for you. What does IT stand for, Molly? What do those two letters stand for? Information technology. Bingo, right. Excellent. And that's what everyone thinks we're doing in IT. And I think that was the initial idea. But in reality, we then spent many decades where IT stood for infrastructure technology because just making the damn stuff work was really difficult. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's a lot easier now, but we are moving to an era where I think it is becoming... Um, it's not so much about standards, it's about ways, methods of consumption, the fact that people are focused on outcomes rather than how they actually do it, the fact that things do tend to work together. It's hard to buy really bad units of IT these days, like it's hard to buy a really bad car these days. In the old days, you know, you had to put oil in cars all the time. There were cars made in Europe where if you put full lock on the wheel, it would actually rub against the wheel arch, that sort of thing. And the, and the parallel is the same. It's hard to buy a really bad car, hard to buy really bad IT. It's getting a lot easier to use and work it together, which means we are finally getting back to IT, meaning information technology, which is where we wanted it to be in the first place. So big swathe of history, but that's what I think it's about. It's interesting. The concept, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but the concept of this podcast titled Data Unchained is just that. Put your data to work, unchain it from infrastructure constraints to make it into information you can use. That's a, that's a great analogy, I think, to why we want to have this po podcast. As you think, though, about um, where you think things will go next, do you see that this is just the start of um, 
making information available? Or do you think we're finally accomplishing this long held objective where we're moving off of infrastructure to information and we've arrived? (laughs) No, you've never arrived. I mean, just just, for for one, think of the change that quantum is going to make, because, you know, that takes us away from many of the basic DNAs that we were talking about. So, I mean, that's going to, that's going to change the foundation of what's possible. Um, no, we've never arrived. And, and actually, here we go. Here's a different answer to your question. Many people aren't even where we are today. I know that sounds really stupid. This is an article, and I'll get to my point afterwards, but this is an article from the New York Times, their on tech um, column, uh, June last year. So June 21. In it, um, the writer is talking about, and I'll just pick a few things here. Um, Americans spend about two-thirds of their TV time watching conventional television and just 6% watching Netflix. Um, Online shopping accounts for less than 14% of all the stuff that Americans buy. Um, Talks about remote work. I'll skip that because I'm sure that's changing. About 6% of Americans order from the most popular restaurant delivery company and so on and so forth. It goes into talking some other sort of more social things about the number of people who ride Pelotons, which you'd think would be everyone in the world, compared to the number of people in America that have pet budgies, birds. Um, you know, and, and one, obviously, you know, way more people have parakeets than have Pelotons. Um, why am I talking about all that? Hopefully obvious is, look, because we're at the forefront of technology, both in what you do in your current company, because of the companies I talk to, um, somewhat on the user side, but more on the vendor side is what I'm getting at here. We tend to think that everyone's at the bleeding edge and everyone's adopted everything and doing everything. The truth is that whilst IT moves very fast in terms of what's possible, what's practical for many people, users I'm talking to actually do, um, moves a lot slower. And so that's what I mean by saying many people aren't already where we are today uh, because there's a lot to do just to get to where we are. We tend to, look, I did, I did other things here. Um, this is, you know, we do research. I mean, holding up this lovely chart for you, which I shall nice read for you, ESG there. research. Pardon? A nice bell curve there for those who can't see it. Yeah, sorry. But this says 73% of organizations identified consumption-based models account for over that, that account for over 21% of their data infrastructure spend okay so basically most organizations are doing consumption based stuff of some sort which is obviously a major trend at the moment um, and that accounts for 21% of their overall data infrastructure spend well and we talk about that a lot and by the way i'm the first to tell you that that change in consumption is incredibly important but it means that 80% of it's still being spent somewhere else in a more standard fashion. Um, it, it, it means that not everyone, most people are still using the cloud to some, or sorry, not still, are using the public cloud to some degree. Um, depends who you want to read, whether that's 60% or 90%. But then you start talking about how much of the data is there. Well, even if it's, it doesn't, I'm making this up now, this is not from research, but let's say it's 60% of the data. Yeah, but that might be 60% of the cruddy data that doesn't really matter. So 100% of the 40% that isn't there might be the really important stuff that's used every day. So I think we have to be very careful about interpreting what we think is leading and driving the market. In other words, there's a lot of sort of regular normal stuff still going on. So 
the answer to your question coming back to that is I think over the next five to 10 years, what you and I would currently think from all the, you know, being part of the Chatterati or whatever, um, what we think is standard and possible will be over the next five to 10 years, which is basically everything will be distributed cloud. Most things will be bought on a consumption basis of some sort, subscription or otherwise. Um, but the biggest shift I see is that move I mentioned going from IT as infrastructure technology where you're having to manage the stuff, lots of people in white coats and working stocks running around twiddling knobs to literally most things, you know, and I'm sorry if this beeped just now, you know, you go onto an app on some device and you're able to do things very easy because of the, the sheer sophistication of the systems, processes, and underlying infrastructure that we've now got. So through all that, being able to accomplish focusing on leveraging the information, the data, and less on the infrastructure components just to store it and keep it safe. Would, would that be a fair summary? Yes, yes. And, and thinking about the, the name of this podcast, um, the unchaining of data and the availability and the extent to which we'd use it are all really important. Look, I'm biased and you might be too. We've known each other through the storage business a lot. Obviously, what you do now is a little different. However, the point I wanted to make is that, yes, I'm biased, but data is the underpinning of IT. Um, and anyone who thinks otherwise is nuts because everything it's I'm not talking about just what you then use and process I'm talking about virtualization and systems and software they're all ultimately data at the end of the day they are zeros and ones stored somewhere to do something some are then active user data which is what we all are familiar with whether we're consuming a video or doing a spreadsheet but it's all zeros and ones and so the extent to which you can maintain that at a decent cost, share it safely between systems and, and geographies, um, present it in ways that are easy to understand and allow people to interact with all that data slash IT in human normal language and get things done. Um, that's the real shift. And again, comes back to what I was saying about IT to IT. So what do you think the the big tectonic shifts are versus what we just like to talk about. You know, I like, I think this is something that's really interesting. I've taken a lot of marketing education. Some of it is psychological. Some is about what motivates people. Some is about the technology. But one of the things that I learned, it kind of ties back to what you were talking about earlier of often marketers get so excited about talking the big new things so they can get an article in an important industry publication or maybe you get captured in the appropriate analyst research, and they're always shooting for that next big news event. But it takes time to adopt. Different countries, different geographies adopt faster than others. Um, you know, the U.S. has innovation, and then Europe takes longer to adopt because they're much more concerned about compliance and privacy. And there's all these different trends that occur. Um, you know, and I think we do often get caught up in what's the big news and versus what are people really doing. So I think it'd be a great way to kind of tie out this conversation of what are the true tectonic shifts that matter um, versus, you know, I think the parts that we just talked about, obviously consumption, decentralized cloud, those are a couple. Are there any others that you feel are important to call out? Shockingly, yes. Um, 
or maybe I'll say some of the same things differently. I do think, uh, you know, and again, when we were discussing this, we talked about the difference between things which are trendy and things which are tectonic shifts. And so trying to, much as, you know, I'll disparage myself and say, well, I couldn't write a line of code if my life depended on it. But I do think having this broader view of the industry uh, over time um, is is useful. So I'll answer this in two or three different ways, if that's okay. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of summarize them at the end. So I'll give you my history first. Now, I'm, I'm looking down because I always want to get the words right because I, I write them down and I think I'm s smart and then I forget about them. But if you think about IT as a whole, I, I give it three eras. These these are not um, – this is Marks. This is not from, from somewhere else. But I think in the 60s, 1960s to 1990s – well, by the way, I'll give you the names of the eras first and I'll explain what I mean. I have, I have to have everything being alliterative or whatever or at least starting with the same letter. So I've got the three eras as – Innovate, integrate, impact. Um, and I think this is a pretty good summary. So by all means, you know, I mean, at least it's a good basis to have a discussion. If you look at the 60s to 90s, roughly, what I mean by innovate is that was all about the technical capabilities. Um, people, by which I mean users, were literally waiting for the next iteration because they did not, you know, gosh, we've all seen the pictures of old disk drives. You know, they were the size of a washing machine and about as yeah. efficient. And stored um, almost no and, data, uh, relatively speaking. Correct, which was a bit of a bit of a problem when it's a data storage device. Yes, exactly. Um, and I talked about you know the developed tape and so on. Of course, by the way, it was fabulous at the time. People thought these were you know leading edge, and now they're in the Smithsonian and they're artifacts of history. But the point was, people were literally waiting for the next iteration of any technology, and just making it all work together took armies of people. So it was very much. Innovation, it was all about the technology. I think from round about the 90s to the 2000s, roughly, I've called it integration. What I mean by that is um, some bit was actually, you could argue, the opposite of integration. It was virtualization. It was beginning to allow things to work together, to get the most out of them. So you got a lot of TCO analysis, that sort of thing, at the time, because that was, you know, how can I... Um, I've, I've got the technology working now. How can I get the most out of the technology? And then thirdly, which is, you know, the last decade or so, I'm calling it impact, which is ties everything we've been talking together. It's all about now the business. Um, and so instead of TCO, it's ROI. What am I getting out of doing this? No one these days, I shouldn't say no one. There's always people because we talked about people doing things at different speed. Most people these days are not necessarily proud because they've got the latest gadget on the floor. They get kudos because they did something for their organization. The application came out faster. They made more money. They were able to serve more people, whatever it might be. Um, and that's where the, 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 the power and the value of IT is these days. Um, I think the other thing, I'm just going to check because I wrote a couple of things down. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, these are just glib phrases, and then I promise I'll summarize it all down. But one of the things I've been playing with, never got around to writing, but is this idea of data centers moving from four walls to four vectors. The data center, in my view, is not dead. Um, but but the problem is you have to think about it differently because a data center typically connotes a building um, you know, with a lot of stuff in it. But if you think about a data center as a center of data, how an organization or a set of organizations um, do all that stuff with data that we talked about about five minutes ago. By the way, what are those four vectors? I think they're flexibility, observability, reliability, and security. Um, 
And if you think about what most people are trying to do, it's all built around that. Everything to do with scale or optimization, TCO, cyber resiliency, all fits under flexibility, observability, reliability, and security. Um, and there's four of them, and that says fours, by the way, because I like to have ways to remember things. What is observability? I think the others are obvious. I'm sitting here chewing in my mind about what is the observability component. Yeah, I think the the quick way of saying that for this, it's the ability to manage and optimize what you've got. So it's going to tie in analytics. It's going to tie in the fact that you can then use that analytics and that automation or autonomy, maybe, um, to monitor and improve things like TCO, because that's still there, and ROI. So it's really the ability to, I don't want to say look or see, um, to analyze and be aware of what your systems are doing. And by the way, that may sound very obvious. And anyone who's not in IT who happens to stumble across this and watch it is going to say, what do you mean they don't know what's going on? I can tell you from doing this for 35 years that many of the end users I speak to don't know what's going on. Um, they just are reacting to the latest fire, the latest thing that you know they got tasked with that day. Um, and when you start asking basic questions about what they're doing and what they got, they go, I don't know, it's working and no one complains. So we're, we're not going to have a look. One of the ways that probably most highlights that visibly right now is the ransomware attacks. I was listening to a podcast with Beam the other day and they were highlighting don't just put a ransomware policy in place, test it, figure out, can you actually run an application after you have an attack, those types of things. But it becomes very visible that the just making sure it works is not enough. You need the, you need to be sure that um, you've tested that the systems can come back from a failure, whatever it is. And it's not just disaster recovery. It's can the applications who need the data get them when they're up in the cloud and the data's in a data center somewhere? There's a lot of pieces here, I think, that are really important. You've just reminded me of something which applies to users and vendors in equal measure. Um, and, you know, my wife or family will come through when I'm doing one of these calls and they'll, they'll mock me for being on, you know, one of my little sort of standard rants. And it's not very long, it's not very clever, um, but it's very useful. And I would say I spent more of my time as an analyst saying the following two words than anything else. So what? Um, so I'll do the vendor side first, because that's easy. I mean, you can imagine doing my job, I sit through a lot of PowerPoint, both for the whole deck and for each individual slide. The number of times I advise, counsel a vendor to go back, look at each slide and the overall story and just ask themselves, so what? And either do one of two things, either tell me and put that on a slide because that's pretty valuable. Or if you haven't got an answer to that, take that stuff out because who cares? Um, but it applies to end users as well because I'll, I'll ask them exactly the same thing. So what? What did you get? Or the, sort of a slight variation of that is, so why are you doing that? Um, and so it may sound... I don't know. As I say it, this is going to sound so banal and obvious. But, you know, if you ever have, a, if I ever have advice, dare I, for an end user, it's what are you trying to do? Too many people, vendors, end users, get on this treadmill of technology as a tool rather than technology as a tool to deliver something. And those things are very different. And just having the latest shiny objects, pointless. Um, it's just so, so what is the question to ask? 
That's great. I love that. Then it comes back to so many different things that, you know, going back to marketing classes I've taken, going back to how do you run customer advisory panels? You know, and it does come down to it is easy to get wrapped up in innovation or you finally procured the thing you've been wanting to procure for two years now and you finally got it. But in the end, so what if it's not making a business impact of some sort? Does it really matter? Um, that's great. I think that's a good thing to leave the the audience with. And it's a good thing for us to all just think about in the different roles we have in this IT industry. Well, what I was going to say, you mentioned Steve earlier, Steve Duplessis, and I remember something he taught me, and I've used it um, unashamedly, you know, stolen and used it. He'll often say to um, a vendor who's, you know, pitching something new, he'll say, talk to me like I'm a six-year-old or a 10-year-old. I'm sorry, I didn't know I hadn't turned something off. But talk, talk to me like I'm a kid. It's not because he doesn't understand. It's because he wants them to be basic and go through it. And I mean, obviously, you have you know a family now, Molly, and it's you know the way kids go, "Why, mum?" And you tell them, and the next question is, "Why?" And the next question is, "Why?" Because multiple. Well, no, I think they get it, but it's multiple layers of why. Because you know why? Either they're just the best salespeople in the world. I mean, that's option number one. Option number two is you haven't really told them so what or so why. Um, and so they're drilling down. So there's nothing wrong with being not childish, childlike, and just really drilling down until you get something that absolutely answers that question, whether you're trying to deliver an IT project or whether you're trying to design the latest, greatest software or hardware to help that happen. So what is a great sort of, um, you can put that on my tombstone. <laughs> I, you know, I look at my little one, I have a little three-year-old at home for people who have not met her yet, but a lot of the industry has because we live on Zoom now and she was at home being a baby through COVID. And now of course she's walking and talking and it is kind of interesting to think about for the new people who are just coming into our industry now or will be in the future. There is some great things we can learn from this evolution and things are evolving faster and faster, but these kind of key takeaways really don't change the, so what, the, what's the impact um, are things that, that will, that will be true 10 years from now, 50 years from now, that whether it's about your work or about what you choose to do as your um, you know, college major, those types of things, I think there are some truths that will stick and are great to hang on to. And it's not like you're going away, but it's kind of fun to capture some of these observations on your last day before you retire as you know, great little pointers that people can pick up and continue to use moving forward. Oh, I hope so. It was, it was fun to do. Thank you for asking. Oh, absolutely. Mark, um, good luck in your retirement. If ever you get an inclination, you want to come back and do another of these shows because who knows where the future will go. We'd love to have you there. Um, ESG is a fantastic analyst group and partner with some really great people. So, you know, I've enjoyed working with your organization. But, you know, if you're looking at the kinds of insights that you personally have, um, it's fun to capture those today and um, we'll definitely stay in touch over the future. Very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Thank you.